It's 2019. An Episcopalian lesbian priest is now the head of a national abortion organization. Kanye West is joining forces with TV preacher Joel Osteen. And this podcast is now on Spotify. Anything can happen. Welcome to your favorite night of the week. This is the Deep End Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is season three, episode eight of the Deep End Podcast. My name is Tim Hatch. I am your host of this podcast that bring, comes to you every Tuesday night right into your home or your living room or your bathroom or your house or your whatever, wherever I'm coming into your life. I am so glad to be there with you at this very moment. I hope that this content blesses your life. I hope it helps you Live a better life in Christ Jesus. The Deep End Podcast brings you news and stories and also biblical instruction. So like and subscribe to The Deep End Podcast on YouTube. It is youtube.com slash The Deep End TV. The Deep End TV. Uh, like and subscribe at youtube.com slash The Deep End TV. Thank you for subscribing. Please do so. If you are watching on youtube.com slash Waters Church, Please change at this moment to youtube.com slash TheDeepNTV and then hit the little red button and the notification bell. If you hit those two things, I will be very happy and you will definitely go to heaven. Um, we also want to say welcome to our radio audience. Scratch that last line. That's not true. Uh, welcome to our radio audience on 1240 AM Woonsocket, 99.3 FM on Thursday nights. So happy Thursday night to you. Hope the weather is better Thursday night than it is tonight on Tuesday. It is snowy and it is cold, and this is why we did this podcast so that we could come to you and you don't have to come to us. Isn't that wonderful? Um, our growing YouTube audience, hello, and also big news. Welcome to our Spotify audience. So if you're a Spotify person, you can find us now on Spotify. Search the Deep End Podcast and you will see it, and then you can subscribe or whatever it is there on Spotify. I'm not a Spotify person, sorry to say, but we hope that those of you who are, We'll join us there. Coming soon, hopefully, WEZE Radio in Boston. So we are spreading out, expanding the territory of the deep end. So excited about what's happening here. And again, can't thank you enough. Every time you watch, every time you listen, it means so much to me because I, I uh, really want to get this content into your head, into your heart, and help you grow in Christ Jesus. In the old days, we used to go out to the church faithfully three times a weekend. Now, we don't do that even almost one time a weekend. So uh, now we have a chance to come to you where you are at, and it makes it easier, and you get the scriptures into your heart. So that's all it's really about. Glad you're here. Let's go to Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. So I said it's 2019, and that means that literally anything can happen. Absolutely anything. Like, this is crazy stuff that is happening. So this week brought news that newly converted to Christianity, rapper and billionaire designer. I didn't even know that this guy is such a uh, successful designer. Evidently, he sells shoes and clothes. I don't know. Call me uh, out of touch. But he is more of a designer than a rap artist now. And um, his name is Kanye West. He came to Christ back in April, and now he's... Going around the country holding Sunday services. It's pretty cool to see what God is doing in and through his life. He is planning to visit Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church this Sunday at 11 a.m. So who would have thought in 2019 that Joel Osteen and Kanye West, these guys who literally five months ago were on polar opposite ends of the spectrum of human existence, are now coming together to do what? to talk about Jesus. Isn't that cool? I like that. Some of you out there on the deep end, I know deep enders, I know some of you don't like Joel Osteen. Well, relax. All right, the guy loves Jesus. But I think that when we see two brothers dwelling together in harmony, we should do what the Bible says. We should rejoice. As it says in Psalm 133, God loves it when we get together. I don't know if you know that, but God loves it when we stop dividing and start uniting around what is most important, and that is the work of Jesus. Uh, Joel Osteen, uh, I know he gets a lot of flack for being, I don't know, watered down or whatever. Every message, he ends with a prayer to give your life to Jesus Christ. I'm all for that. Amen. And Kanye West, what's he talking about? Jesus is king, going around the country, singing about Jesus. There is no doubt that there is a change in his heart. And people want to be skeptical of this whole thing. I say, why? Embrace it. 
I say, uh, don't, uh, I don't use it to justify or validate your faith. Our faith is not validated by who believes it. Our faith is validated by history and the reality of the resurrection in our own hearts. But it is cool to see two people like this coming together to talk about Jesus. So evidently, this Sunday at 11 a.m., the rapper will visit, rapper and designer, by the way, will visit the pastor, uh, Pastor Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. And uh, Osteen will conduct a 15 to 20 minute interview conversation uh, talking about what God is doing in his life. And then uh, Joel is putting the uh, questions together for um, Kanye. And then at night, 7 p.m., how cool is this? The uh, Kanye West Choir, Sunday Service Choir, will be performing for the church. So that is really cool. Uh, it is really awesome to see things like that happening. God is on the move. I say this at our church God is on the move in celebrity culture, He really is. Um, a lot of people in the celebrity culture starting to come to Christ, and there's a lot of celebrities who are Christians. Be careful what you say about them. A lot of them, actually all of them need Jesus, and a lot of them are finding Jesus, and we want to praise God for that. We don't want to be jealous little hypocritical older brothers. We want to be bigger than that. We want to celebrate as the prodigals come home, from wherever they come home from. We want to celebrate with our Father because he's happy to see them return. Amen. Um, now, again, 2019. And I never thought I would say that Kanye West would be visiting Joel Osteen's church to talk about Jesus. And that is one thing that I never thought I would see happen. So here's another thing that I never thought I'd say. A pro-abortion female Episcopalian priest has been named president of the National Abortion Federation. <laughs> and she says, quote, abortion providers are modern-day saints. Wow. See, you know, you string this sentence together and you think this sentence would have never come together 10 years ago. <laughs> like female Episcopalian, lesbian, lesbian priest. That there's so many things wrong with just that sentence. Never mind, never mind president of National Abortion Federation. Putting anything goes. It's 2019. Who knows what's gonna happen next? Anyway, um, this is who she is here up on the screen. Her name is Catherine Hancock Ragsdale, and I don't mean any disrespect to her as a person, but I absolutely do disrespect the view and disagree with her views. Uh, evidently, she is from the great state of Massachusetts. Uh, <laughs> of course. Oh, Massachusetts, God help you. Anyway, born and raised, Massachusetts, I hear you. Um, she earned her degrees in English and religion from the College of William and Mary, Master's of Divinity from the Virginia Theological Seminary in 1987, a Doctor of Ministry from the Episcopalian Divinity School in 1996. Well, the Episcopalians long ago left substitutionary atonement and did, uh, Orthodox Christian faith and have adopted uh, this quasi-faith religious practice that has abandoned all the things that make Christianity what it really is. Uh, this lady fights, of course, for LGBTQ equality and then public issues affecting women and families throughout her career. Uh, she testified before the U.S. Congress as well as other numerous state legislatures about the importance of abortion access and was a featured speaker at the 2004 uh, March for Women's Lives in Washington, D.C. Uh, she has preached about how abortion is a blessing and has been active in clinic defense work and other activities to support abortion providers for more than 35 years. So she is all in. Now, she says something, and I want to just address it because I think that this is important as a pastor, as a leader, as a, as a Bible teacher, to address when we hear false doctrine. Because false doctrine, understand, does not come out of left field, does not come out of the Quran, does not come out of the writings of Hinduism. False doctrine in Christianity always comes out of the Bible. Never forget that. What false doctrine people do, what false teachers do, is they take the Bible and they twist it. That's what they do. They don't take from other faiths and, and then try to ramrod that into the church. They don't do that. They take the Bible. So what, what, where do they get this idea? Well, they, they learned it from their father. Their father is Satan. Their father is the one who distorted the scriptures in the Garden of Eden. This is what he has been doing since creation, right? He goes to Eve and he said, did God really say? False doctrine. And he presents the question to her, uh, totally false. Remember, God said, you can eat all the trees of the garden, just the one you can't eat, you don't touch. Uh, you don't eat it, actually. And the devil, the serpent, comes to Eve and says, did God really say that you cannot eat any of the trees of the garden? No, false doctrine. You see the little twist of Scripture, the little twist of God's Word. Well, where does he do this elsewhere? He does it throughout uh, the, the Old Testament, and he also does it at uh, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Remember that the first temptation, Jesus refutes the temptation with 
scripture. And then the next second temptation, the devil comes and says, uh, why don't you throw yourself off the temple mount because it is written, you shall not strike your foot against a stone and he will guard you and all those, and, and the angels shall keep your foot from striking a stone. Well, the devil knows scripture and what he does with it is he twists it. And this is exactly what this lady is doing concerning abortion because she actually quotes, she actually references. I, I always wondered this too. Where do these Episcopalian and progressive Christians get these scriptural mandates for uh, the right to abortion? And it's really an interesting take. She goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 21. First, she says, a lot of Christians who are against abortion talk about Psalm 139, verse 13, which is, I was you know, formed in the inward parts, and you knit me together in my mother's womb, Psalm 139, verse 13. And also Jeremiah 1, 5, which reads, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Pro-life verses, right? Well, she says, unfortunately, many Christians don't see the pro-abortion <laughs> scriptures in the Bible. So what, uh, what scriptures would those be? Okay, here they are. Exodus chapter 21 22 through 25. Here, I, I'll read it, and then, you'll and then I'll explain it, because it's such a crazy verse. Um, it says this, quote, Exodus 21, 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall be surely fined, as the woman's husband shall oppose on him, and he shall pay as judges determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. End of text. That, <laughs> that is the verse that is supposedly pro-abortion. Why? Because, as it says, if two men are fighting and a pregnant woman tries to break them up and they hit her by accident and the baby comes out, well, and, and she's assuming that the baby comes out dead, well, then all you got to do is pay a fine. So obviously it's not a human if all you got to do is pay a fine. <laughs> so that's the proof text for the pro-abortion argument. They have another one. It's in Numbers chapter 5, verse 11, when it talks about a woman who might be unfaithful to her husband. And actually, it's funny because in this text, and it's too long to read, but in Numbers chapter 5, there's this procedure where the husband takes the wife to the priest and he gives her this special concoction of a drink. And she drinks it, and if her thigh swells, and if her abdomen swells, or if, I'm sorry, if her thigh drops and her abdomen swells, she's been unfaithful, and she shall be barren for life. Now, about where all that comes from, and it's kind of like witch doctory stuff, and I bet you didn't even know it was in the Bible, but it is there. Um, what it's all about, I really haven't thoroughly studied. Got to be honest with you, the Bible's a big book. I have not thoroughly studied that passage. But <laughs> the point is, is that uh, she's saying, and by the way, in the text itself, it says, it keeps talking about the husband's authority, the husband's authority. The husband gets to do whatever he wants with his wife, so he brings her to the priest, and he says, okay, uh, have her drink the stuff, and if her, if her uh, uh, womb drops, and she actually interprets that text to mean that the, bi the baby falls out uh, and dies, then, then uh, she's been unfaithful, and he can divorce her and find another wife, and yada, yada, yada. Okay, let me just say, if you're going to Numbers chapter 5 and Exodus 21 to make an argument for whether that person in a mother's womb is a, <laughs> it's a human being, uh, you are reaching, my friend. You are what we call twisting scripture. This is nothing new. This is what the devil's been doing since creation. So we have to be aware that there is these lies out there, and this is what's happening. And what's, what's really happening, this is my pastoral concern here, is that people are getting filled with confusion. This is confusion. You understand? When you have um, recognized, at least in their denomination, recognized leaders uh, using Scripture to, to purvey this view that abortion is not just allowable and should be legal, but is actually a quote-unquote blessing and that abortion doctors are quote-unquote saints, have you lost your flippin' mind? Are you crazy? What this is? This is what's happening. This is 2019. 2019 is a very—I didn't realize— it is confusing. It is more confusing than ever before in our age, in our day. And I have to say this, and you need to understand this. It's going to get more confusing. Like, I don't think that this is going to get less off, less, less, you know, uh, less occasional. It's going to get more occasional. Uh, more confusion is coming down the pike every single day. We have news that lies to us every day. We have legislatures and uh, public officials that lie to us every day. I actually had a conversation with a guy after church. He's, a, he's an upstanding guy. He's been in our church a long time. And 
I preached uh, a message and I talked about abortion. I talked about uh, pro-life views and all that stuff. When I got down, he said, thank you for saying that. He said, I see so much confusion. I don't even know who to listen to anymore. And that's what's happening. So I, I really want to say, and I want to extend this to fellow preachers and teachers of the scriptures out there who might listen to the Deep End podcast or watch this video. Please preach the truth. Please preach about things that are happening in the world. So much preaching today is just trying to make people feel good. So much preaching today is supposed to make people just walk out of our church and say, oh, I just loved every moment of it. You know, sometimes we got to say the truth, and sometimes the truth hurts. Now, you can say the truth in a way that is good, but and you shouldn't be like, you shouldn't be like belligerent with the truth, but you got to say what needs to be said. Amen? I mean, really, like, like let's, let's say the truth and not, not be shy and not be apologetic about the truth because the truth sets men free, right? Anyway, there are so many pro-life pro verses in the scriptures, I don't have time to run them down, but I'll just give you a couple because there's not two. She says there's two pro-life verses. There's not two. There's like 15. Like Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Uh, Isaiah 49 verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. Isaiah 49 verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. And it goes on and on. How about Genesis chapter 25 verse 22? When it talks about the children struggling together within uh, Rebecca's womb. The children, the, the words are, the children struggled together within her womb. The Hear it again. The children, not the fetuses, not the globs of cells, not the, you know, uh, inconvenient <laughs> pregnancy, okay? The children struggled together within her. That is in the first book of the Bible. In the very beginnings of God's redemptive story. And there they are, listed as children in the womb. And God doesn't just call them children. When he talks to Rebecca, he says, two nations are in your womb. That means that those people aren't just people, individuals. They represent nations. They're going to they're gonna multiply, and they're going to become two great nations. And they do. To this day, they are those two great nations. Um, Galatians, how about New Testament? Galatians 1.15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace. That's Paul the Apostle's own testimony. Before I was born, he set me apart. Um, John the Baptist is referred to in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, from the angel, saying to his father Zechariah, he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled from the, with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, not a clump of cells, not a fetus, a person, is filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And when Elizabeth goes to visit Mary, or Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, John the Baptist in the womb kicks because Elizabeth is bearing Jesus, and Elizabeth, I'm sorry, Mary is bearing Jesus, and Elizabeth is bearing John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, the forerunner, is excited that he's within the he's within proximity of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he's still in his mother's womb. Hello? Hello, Episcopalians, are you paying attention to the Bible anymore at all? Okay. I don't know. I don't want to pick on Episcopalians, but they need Jesus. I'm just saying. Uh, something has happened. But I think what happened, actually, to be honest with you, I know a little bit about their history. They are the richest denomination. They are the richest Christian denomina denomination in the country. They've got billions and billions of dollars in the bank. Uh, they are... They, they've been um, comically referred to as Wall Street's church for many, many decades, and that just means that Wall Street billionaires have just given you know, endowments to them over the years for, for decades. And so they've got billions of dollars sitting in the, in the bank. They don't have to worry about paying bills. They can just say whatever they want, uh, and uh, they can just you know, flow with the culture because they don't care. And this is the corrupting influence of having too much money. Uh, if there's one thing that the Old Testament scriptures teach us clearly is that when God's people get wealthy, it doesn't usually go well for them. Like, this is Solomon's downfall. He becomes so wealthy, he makes silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And from that moment, the national moral, the, the morality of the nation, the national fever, the national uh, temperature of the nation just declines very precipitously, and they end up enslaved to the Babylonians. Money corrupts, and power corrupts, and this is what's happening in a lot of in American denominations. It's happening all over this country. There's a lot of confusion. We need, this is why the Deep End Podcast exists, we need to tell people what is true, what is scriptural, what is in the Bible. And that brings me to 
the Book of Acts. Okay, Book of Acts, Chapter Three. Here we are. We're gonna we're gonna complete Chapter Three today. I'm excited. Three chapters in, eight episodes in, three chapters through. Okay, so today we are talking about this. Our mission, preach Christ. Our mission, preach Christ. The gospel event is our message. The gospel event is our message. So chapter three of Acts, it brings us that story, that wonderful story we talked about last week of the lame man, the man lame from his mother's womb. Mm -hmm. Another instance of being alive in, the mom, in, in our mother's womb. Uh, a lame man from birth, and he is carried every day to the temple, and Peter and John are going to the temple to pray, not to perform miracles, not to preach, not to do anything, just going to the temple. And he looks to them for money, and they say, we don't have money. We don't have money. And we have the name of Jesus. And he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he does. And the man gets his strength, and he runs, and he leaps, and he jumps into the temple. And it's a beautiful moment. And, it's, and if you didn't watch last week's episode, watch that episode, because I talked about how the miracle was actually a message. The miracle was actually also a parable. It was a true miracle. It really happened, but it also happened in a way to teach us so much about who Jesus is, what the church is, and what salvation is all about. So this man is dramatically healed, and we have to go forward now from verse 10 onward into chapter 4 and look at what happens next. And here's what happens next in chapter 3, verse 11. It says this, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So this is Solomon's portico. It was this long, uh, narrow, uh, covered area outside of the temple. It was a very beautiful area. It was double-columned on each side. It was the, also on the edge of the court of the Gentiles. And if you remember from last week, we talked about this man was laid at the gate called Beautiful, which was also the gate between the court of women insiders and the court of the Gentiles outsiders. And so Solomon's colonnade is running alongside that area. Just thinking about this, you've got you've to get these, uh, these uh, geographical facts down. Why? Because they help us understand the movement of Jesus. The point being is that um, Solomon's colonnade actually becomes, well, first off, Solomon's colonnade is where Jesus taught a lot in chapter 10 of John, but it's also where the church continues to gather when they come to the temple. Now, remember, the church was originally just a Jewish sect. It wasn't, it wasn't Gentiles in the church for 10 years. So they're Jewish people gathering in the temple, and they have a little special place, and they're kind of like outsiders. And so they actually gather in a place called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Colonnade, um, which was on the edge of the Gentile court. I, I bear down here because I, I think that, ge that geographical you know, uh, presentation or these details are important because it's teaching us what the church is. The church is the bridge. The church is the bridge from the Jewish faith to the world. The Christian faith starts in Judaism. It, it is birthed out of Judaism. Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> he died for the sins of the world, first for the Jews, and then it spreads out. So they're right there. They're on the border in the temple between the Gentiles, the nations, and the insiders. I think that's a beautiful thing. Why do I say that so much? Because this is the mission. This is the mandate of the church. The mandate of the Christian church is always to be for people on the outside, for the people disconnected from those on the inside. And I want to tell you this from experience. When a church loses its passion for outsiders, that church slowly dies. When a church loses its passion for people far from God, that church loses its mission, its calling, it loses God's blessing, it loses its finance. I mean, I'm telling you, God dries up those churches so they can die off quickly because God needs churches to get out there and share the gospel with the world, okay? So this is where the church gathers and the people are coming running to Peter. He clings to Peter. The word in Greek is a strong word, meaning he literally would not let Peter and John go. Of course, you wouldn't either if this happened to you and somebody healed you that dramatically. So verse 12 says this, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Now notice the order here. The order of the text is important because what happens first is the man is healed, and then Peter speaks. Healed, then speaks. The point is, Scripture is teaching us that the normal 
the effectiveness of a church is predicated on the church's benefit to a community first. See, sometimes we want to preach without helping. That doesn't help anybody. The church has to be geared toward helping people, providing healing. If it's not miraculous healing, then it's just practical healing, material needs being met, feeding the hungry, uh, clothing the naked, doing what Jesus talked about, right, in Matthew chapter 25, going and visiting the orphan and the sick and the prisoner and going out and helping people and loving them materially and practically in Jesus' name. I think we do that first, and then we earn the right to speak. Does that make sense? See, some of you want to rail at your friends and your neighbors and your, your unbelieving brothers and sisters and relatives, and, and you wonder why you don't get anywhere, because you're a jerk to them most of the time. Like, be nice, be helpful, be kind, love them practically and materially first. Then I think you earn the right. You earn the right to speak into their lives. We cannot just speak without first earning the right. This is a world that is filled with confusion, and I think that what, what, what we need to remember is that we are we are the light of the world, we are the salt of the earth, and those are practical and beneficial items that were used in the ancient world to bring healing and wholeness and health to people's lives. Christians, that's our mandate, to bring healing, help, and wholeness to people's lives. But that's not all we do. We also have a message to proclaim. And so today we're going to talk about that. And here's a couple of stats that I want to share with you about the book of Acts. The book of Acts contains nine visions, 18 miracles, and 18 sermons. Isn't that interesting? Nine visions, 18 miracles, three miraculous deliverances from prison, by the way, included in those 18 miracles, and 18 sermons and speeches. Why do I bring this up? Because when we read the book of Acts, and particularly when we read the Bible, we really get switched on by the miraculous supernatural events, and, and, and we kind of ignore the discourses, the messages. Okay, that, 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 that's a fool's errand. Okay, because here's, the, here's what we end up doing. We end up saying this question. We end up asking this question. Why doesn't God do that kind of stuff today? Like, why doesn't God let prisoners out today who are, who are, who are unjustly imprisoned in Iran and Iraq and these, you know, foreign Muslim countries? Why doesn't God do that today? And why don't we see people rise from the dead today? And why don't we see supernatural miraculous healings today as often as they did in the book of Acts and as often as they did in the Bible? Well, first off, I want to just give you a little bit of um, a reality check on miracles in the Bible. Uh, particularly first in the book of Acts, okay? This is important. This is, this is foundational to the book of Acts. See, the miracles in the book of Acts were always used to substantiate or authenticate the message of the apostles. And, and, and so whenever you see them preaching, it's usually on the heels of a miracle. Remember, 18 miracles, 18 sermons. Those numbers are equal for a reason, in other words, God substantiated those 18 uh, sermons by providing 18 supernatural activities that were outside the bounds of the natural world order to substantiate, to say this message is real. Even here in chapter 3, people don't come running to Peter and John to hear what Peter's about to say until this lame man from birth is miraculously healed after 40 years of being brought to the temple and laid at its gate. The point is, <clears throat> the miracles have a purpose. God doesn't just fling miracles around for the sake of flinging miracles around. No, God created the world orderly and good, and it functions properly, and if you take care of it, it will help you and bring healing and life to your bones. If you abuse it, and if you abuse your body, it will get sick, it will get corroded, it will get destructed, just dis yeah, destructed, and it will die sooner. And so we have to remember that, and by the way, and this is... Uh, just, you know, zooming out now and wide-angle lensing the entire Bible, there's not many miracles over 1,500 years of human history. The Bible covers 1,500 years of human history, um, specifically, beginning with Abraham. And there's not many miracles, like in that span of time. And by the way, they show up at specific times in great number. And each time, is at the inauguration of a different era of God's redemptive purposes. So I want to just explain this for a moment. There's three, there's three times in the Bible where God like unloads miracles. <clears throat> the first time is when the people of Israel are enslaved in, in Egypt. And, you know, the ten plagues and the dividing of the Red Sea and then the dividing of the Jordan River with Joshua and on and on and on it goes. Well, those were used to establish Israel. 
to bring them authentication, substantiate Israel as God's chosen nation. Then there's the second era where miracles are unloaded on the natural order, and that is with uh, the era of Elijah and Elisha. As Israel is declining morally and ignoring God, he raises up these prophets to produce these miraculous works to say, hey, I'm the God of miracles still, and you are denying me, and I'm trying to wake you up. I'm trying to get your attention to turn back to me. And now, this is the third time. I'm sorry, no, there's a third time, which is the time of Daniel and the exiles. And this is about 400 years after Elisha. So you have 400 years after Moses and Joshua, you have Elisha and Elijah. And then about 400 years after that, you have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know those stories, right? They go into the fiery furnace. They come out unharmed. Uh, Daniel goes into the lion's den. He comes out unharmed. These are miraculous moments to what? Substantiate, authenticate God's new era for God's people. And then after the uh, exiles return back to uh, Israel, there's about another 400 years, isn't there? There's another 400, 500 years or so, and then Jesus shows up, and there's a new era, and that new era is an outbreak of miracles to do what? To substantiate a new era, to substantiate the people of God, but for the first time in history, okay, this is cool, for the first time in history in the book of, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, miraculous powers are at work to substantiate not just the Jewish nation, no, the Christian nation, the Christian people, the branch has has blossomed. The, the tree has blossomed from one, one, one uh, trunk to the nations. This is the kingdom of God. So what you see happening, these miracles in the book of Acts are there to substantiate the message of the book of Acts, and we're going to see this again and again and again. I hope that helps you understand the miraculous because most of the time when it comes to the world, God wants it to function the way he set it up to function. Like, and, 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 and by the way, um, I think it was Albert Einstein who said there's, there's two ways to see the natural world. Uh, the first way is to say nothing's a miracle, and the second way is to say everything's a miracle. Like, the sunrise is a miracle. Uh, the, 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 the seasonal changes are a miracle. Every time, we're up here in New England, every time I see how dead and dried up and gray it is, isn't it a miracle when it starts to blossom again in the spring? And you think, ah, oh, it's, it's going to get warm again. You know, it's not going to, we're not going to be in death in, in death country for the rest of our lives. It's a miracle. But the, the miracles of the book of Acts are there to substantiate the message. And we do well, we do well to pay attention closely, not just to the miracles, but to the messages, not just to what God does supernaturally, but what God does spiritually through the preaching of the word. And I bring all that up to say this, what does your church preach? What does your church preach? It's a valid question. It is one of the most, most important questions you can ask about a church. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be naive to think that you're just going to stay at Waters Church all your life if you're a Waters Church member. And you might not stay at the church that you go to. If you don't come to Waters Church, you probably go to another church. Have you ever asked what the church preaches? Have you checked this out? Because when you go to another church, when you move or when you transfer churches, you always want to check that out first. Are they preaching Christ? And you say, well, why is that important? Because a lot of churches are not preaching Christ anymore, a.k.a. lesbian abortion priests, right? Um, <laughs> what, what, what should I be on the lookout for, Pastor, if, 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 uh, if, you, if I run into a church and they start preaching something? Okay, watch out for a couple things. I'm going to give you five things. Number one, watch out when a church preaches politics. Watch out when a church tells you who to vote for and who not to vote for. Because the answer is not in politics. The answer is not in Washington, D.C. The answer is in the empty grave, Okay. So watch out when a church starts taking a side. And I know this well. I remember the days of the moral majority and Jerry Falwell's of the world. And I thank God for the work of Jerry Falwell, but I think he went too far. And he tried to legislate morality into this country, and it didn't work. It actually backfired. Okay? The country is far more uh, <laughs> ungodly today and secular today than, than at the beginning of the moral majority movement. So watch out for that. Number two, ethics and moralism. Like, watch out for when the church preaches do-goodism. Be careful about that. Uh, terms such as social justice or even justice as a whole. Are we for justice? Absolutely. But the message of Jesus is not justice. The message of Jesus, if there is a just judicial reality to the message of Jesus, it is this, that the justice of God was satisfied on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's the message of Jesus, that he took our wrath, he took God's wrath on himself and now has taken the punishment so that God could justify us before himself. 
When it comes to justice, justice begins at the cross, not in our do-goodism. And we don't do good to get saved. We do good because we are saved. It's a huge difference. Watch out for churches that tell you, do this, don't do that. It's called moralism. It's called ethical preaching. Yes, there are ethics. Yes, there are morals. But watch out for when that is the center of the church. Number three, feel-good messages. Uh, I call these therapeutic churches. They just want to make you feel good. They don't want to challenge you. They don't want to challenge. They don't want to. They don't want to talk about difficult issues. They just want you to love them and think that the pastor's awesome and never say anything challenging or anything quote unquote politically incorrect. A lot of the gospel is politically incorrect. Okay, we believe a Jew died for the entire world, and unless you believe in him, you're going straight to hell. Okay, that's politically incorrect. <laughs> the central message. People say, I can't believe you talk about homosexual. I can't believe you talk about abortion. I can't believe you talk about the politically incorrect. Friends, the, those are fringe politically incorrect issues of the Christian movement. The most politically incorrect thing we have to say is that unless you believe in a Jewish carpenter from 2,000 years ago, you're going to hell. That is politically incorrect. Okay? So if it starts there, everything else is up for grabs. I'm sorry. Everything else is going to be politically incorrect from there. Feel good messages. We should be challenging people, calling for repentance. Number four, theoretical philosophies of the world. These are the kind of churches that want to read poems by Robert Frost and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I've got nothing against those people, but they are not gospel presenters, okay? Watch out for that. And uh, you will know these churches because they will never open the Bible. The pastor will never stand and open the scriptures. He will never, actually, he will never even quote, if he quotes the scriptures, he quotes from like Proverbs or, you know, some random psalm or something like that. But he won't actually talk about Jesus. Watch out for those kind of verses. And then number five, watch out for us versus them, churches. Many churches make a certain group of people the enemy. And here's the deal, friends. Christians, listen to me. Pay attention very carefully. No man is our enemy. No man. They are people who are either lost or found, period. And even if they are our enemy, even if they say, no, 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 I hate you and I'm your enemy, guess what the Bible tells us? Guess what Jesus told us? Love your enemies. So no man is our enemy. It's not us versus them. Hey, it's not even us versus the Episcopalians. I pray that God wakes them up. I pray that God brings them to Christ, okay? But the thing is, is that they are not our enemy, but they are false teachers, and we should call out false teachers who purvey to say these things that are false in the name of Christ, that is the role of every good preacher, every good Bible scholar. Um, just look at the Apostle Paul who calls out false preachers all the time. Okay, and these are people who deny, deny and watch out for who you label a false preacher because I know some of you are saying, oh, Joel Osteen, he's a false preacher. No, watch out for people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh and rose again. Okay, that's the definition of a false preacher. Okay, so that's where it starts. Anyway, us versus them, watch out for it. And here's why I say all this. Because so many churches are not preaching Christ anymore. They aren't. They're preaching all kinds of weird nonsense. It doesn't change anybody's life. And here's why it's important. Do you know why it's important? Because if we don't preach Christ, people don't get saved and hearts don't get changed. That's, that's really the reality. That's the issue. So I have a friend who sent me this text. He was in Washington, D.C., and he was visiting uh, I think his daughter down in Washington, D.C., and he, ran by, he walked by this church. It's another Episcopalian church. Sorry, Episcopalians. I'm picking on you today. But I don't think you're listening to me anyway. So anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, this was the, the church sign that he walked by. St. John's Church, speaker series this Sunday, 10 a.m. this Sunday. Here's the title of the message. The preacher, Professor Peter Mara, director of Georgetown Environmental Initiative, the title of his message is, I kid you not, quote, the decline of North American birds, end quote. Man, that must have been some ripper of a sermon, I'll tell you. No, I know, <laughs> I know exactly what that's going to be about. You know what that's about, right? You have to read it twice. You're going to say, oh, it's an environmental message, right? It's an, and that's another thing. Watch out for environmental churches. These people who want to hug the trees. Like, watch out for that, okay? We are actually called in the Scriptures to use creation to make humans flourish. Remember what I just said. We are called to use create, use creation to help humans flourish. We are not called to use humans to make creation flourish. God loves people. God loves things. God, God loves people, not things. So be careful. In fact, every act of exploitation in the world, whether it be in a foreign government that exploits its people and causes them to live in poverty while the presidents live as fat cats in their gated communities, or in this country... That is, you know, putting every uh, stitch of their energy into trying to save the earth 
uh, at the expense of even population control. You see, the abortion lobby goes hand-in-hand with the uh, environmental lobby in Washington, D.C. Less children means it's better for the environment. What a bunch of nonsense, by the way. Uh, And so what happens is every exploitation of the human species is at the cost of worshiping and serving creation. Worshiping and serving creation. Watch out for that. It's all over the world. Anyway, the decline of North American birds. God help them. Um, (laughs) Back to the question. What does your church preach? What does your church preach? And this is what the church has to preach. The church has to preach. And I want to make it very careful, very clear for you. The church has to preach that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. And three days later, he rose again. And if you place your faith in him, you shall have life. Period. That's it. That's the gospel. <laughs> we overcomplicate it with all kinds of other things, but that's the gospel. That's the, that's, and what I want you to hear me say is this. Christianity is different from every other religious faith in the world because, th- because of this one thing. Listen. Because Christianity is founded on an event, not theories, not philosophies, not rules, not morality. Christianity is not based on morality. How do I know? Because the first, the first person to meet Jesus in heaven, do you know who it was? It was the thief on the cross. This guy had no chance to get baptized. He had no chance to live a good life. He had no chance to come to some doctrinal deep understanding of the faith. He turned to Jesus on his last breath and said, hey, remember me. And Jesus said, done. In heaven, the first guy. So how could it possibly be about theories? How could it possibly be about philosophies? How could it possibly be about rules? And the very first guy who crossed through the gates of heaven in Jesus' name was a criminal and a crook who was saved with one statement of faith. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that cool, by the way? Isn't that beautiful? This is what separates Christianity from all other religions. Check it out, and you will see what I'm telling you is true. Every other religion is based on do this, don't do that, or believe in this philosophy, or, you know, uh, deny yourself, or whatever. You know, you have, to, you have to attain to some metaphysical, ethereal, intellectual hierarchy of beliefs, and then you will reach some state of everlasting bliss. Every other faith is like that, to some extent, for better or for worse, uh, more or less. Christianity is completely different because Christianity is, fi- is based on what? The gospel of Jesus, the, the, the event of the crucifixion and the resurrection. <laughs> That's what it's based on. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, he says, if Christ is not raised, then you are still in your sins and our faith is in vain. Paul basically says the whole house of cards falls if we can find Jesus' buried body somewhere. Show me Jesus' buried body somewhere, Christianity is a dud. Christianity is a false religion, and we should abandon it immediately. Now, we're never going to find his body. <laughs> he's, he's alive. 2,000 years later, people are still saying he's alive. And so this is the other thing that I want you to hear me say, is that Christianity is based on an event that produces more events. By that I mean Christianity is an event, okay, the event of the resurrection, that produces more events. What events? Your salvation. Your salvation. If you think about it, your salvation was an event. And here's what I want you to hear me say. Christianity is not something that you do. Christianity is not something that you do. Christianity is something that happens to you. <laughs> That's the truth. You got saved. God saved you. That happened to you. You, you, didn't, you didn't obey a bunch of rules and then suddenly feel better about yourself. No, you came to saving faith. You came to a conversion moment. This is why Paul gets saved, of all people in the, in the book of Acts. Paul, the ardent enemy of Christianity, gets radically saved. It happened to him. And listen to me, for all those people who said, well, I was looking for Jesus and I found him. Uh, anyone who was looking for Jesus less than the apostle Paul, show me him. <laughs> The Apostle Paul wanted to be a Christian less than anyone ever. (laughs) And what happens? It happens to him. So Christianity is an event that produces more events. Augustine gets saved in the 400s. C.S. Lewis gets saved in the 1900s. Kanye West gets saved in the 2019. This happens again and again. Christianity is based on an event that happens and produces more events after it. 
It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. I, I, I don't need to give you philosophy. I don't need to give you poetry. I need to tell you about something that happened. So that, let me put it in layman's terms because I think this is so important. There, there, there are two, there's this, there was this old, uh, uh, what is that called when it's a, when it's a, what's this called? Acronym. Okay, there's an old acronym, WWJD. What did it mean? What, what would Jesus do? This, this flew around the church about two decades ago. All, everybody wearing their little, what would Jesus do bracelets. Okay, you ever wear that bracelet? And you want to talk about a self-defeating project. Just wear that bracelet through your day. <laughs> you'll, be like, you'll like fail 15 times, like more often than you normally would because you'd be like, oh, Jesus wouldn't do that either. I'm a moral failure. You know? And it just defeats you. It just destroys you. It just like annihilates your self-confidence because here's the deal. Christianity is not about what would Jesus do. That's not what it's about. Okay? Christianity is about what did Jesus do? What did WDJD, what did Jesus do, is greater than what would Jesus do? Now, are you saying, Pastor, are you saying that we shouldn't try to obey Jesus? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that foundationally, every house is built on a foundation, right? Foundationally, it is what did Jesus do? So that when you don't do what Jesus would do, you can look back at what Jesus did do and say, thank you, Jesus, that what I just did doesn't count against me. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Okay, I say all that to get to the, very, the second verse in our study today. Um, verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people and he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? In other words, it's not about us. Okay, we didn't do this. Our power, nor our piety. Okay, so it's not about moralism. There it is right there on the very second verse of our talk today. It's not about how good you are. It's not about your piety. It is about the name of Jesus, about Jesus. He is the one. And then, by the way, he says, men of Israel. Why do you wonder? Like, you are Israelites. You should be very familiar with the fact that God works supernaturally in history. These stories are your stories. And he goes on, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. So he's going, he's going really hardcore Israelite heritage here, right? He's going to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he's repeating himself to say, listen, you people of all people should know. Our God does the miraculous. Our God breaks through in supernatural ways to get our attention. He did this in Egypt. He did this with Elijah. He did this with Daniel and the exiles. And he did this with Jesus. You people should be aware of this, right? So he's going to go on, and he's going to talk about how, um, what Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he says this. <clears throat> Uh, the God of Abraham glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate and when he had, de when he had decided to release him, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Okay, again, what is he talking about? An event. What's the, what's the central element of his message here? His central, the central element is Jesus died and rose again. And by the way, notice how he puts them on their heels. <laughs> Look at what he says to the very people who just did that, like a couple of weeks earlier, who were crying out with the priests and, and, and the Sadducees, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. That's what they said to Pilate. We have no king but Caesar. They put him on the cross. And, and I love this. Christian preachers, pastors, fellow pastors who might be listening and watching, challenge people. Like, tell them what they did. Oh, I don't want to tell people what they did. It makes them feel guilty. Sometimes they need to feel guilty before they'll turn to the grace of God. Actually, every time, right? If you just make people feel better about themselves, they'll never turn to a Savior. Anyway, he says, you. Look at how many times he says you. You deny, delivered him over. You denied him. You denied him. You asked for a murderer. You killed him. <laughs> Ouch. Good Lord. I wouldn't want to be at Peter's church. And then he says, but God, or whom God. In the NIV, it's better because he says, but God. And it's actually, the emphasis is in the Greek text on, but God. In spite of what you did, but God. But God raised him from the dead. In other words, you couldn't stop the author of life from coming back to life. 
That's the message that we preach. The message, of our pre- the, the message that we preach is that Jesus beat death. And then he says this in verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health, this perfect health, I'm sorry, this perfect health in the presence of you all. So it's very clear that, G- that the preaching of the um, apostles from the foundation of our church, from the foundation of this movement, okay, is faith in Christ restores people, brings perfect health to this man. He is an illustration of what will ultimately happen to all of us, okay, at the resurrection of the, on the last day when Jesus comes back. Guess what? We all are resurrected to new, imperishable bodies, um, bodies that will not grow old, bodies that will not get sick, bodies that will never suffer, bodies that will never strain. Isn't that beautiful? Bodies that will never cry. Why? Because Jesus is making all things new. His name is bringing restoration. So he goes on. And he says, and now, brothers, now I want to bear in here on verse 17 because this is an important passage. Look at this. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Notice that Paul, Peter says, you know, guys, you did this and you were ignorant. You didn't know what you were doing. And this is the reality of, Christian, uh, uh, of, non- of non-believers everywhere. Christians, please listen to me very carefully because we have a terrible habit. We have a terrible habit in the church of getting upset when non-Christians don't act like Christians. <laughs> They're not supposed to. <laughs> they never signed up for this, okay? God has not saved them yet, so don't worry about it. In fact, what's ironic about the church is we get more upset about non-Christians acting like non-Christians than when Christians act like non-Christians. Amen. For heaven's sakes, the Bible says judgment begins with the house of God. Our Savior said, hey, before you try to pull the speck out of your brother's eye, why don't you take a look at the log in your own? Take care of that one first. Okay, so listen, this, this stuff about um, do not judge. Yeah, unbelievers should say that. Don't judge me. Okay, I won't. I have no business judging you. But for Christians to say it, whoa. No, we are each other's keeper. We are brothers and sisters. Now, I will not judge you for something that's not scriptural. Okay, I can't judge you for how you spend every dime of your money. I'm not interested in that. I can't judge you for whether you homeschool your kids or put them in public school. And all that. That's all up for grabs. But where something is clear, like when somebody's sleeping with someone they shouldn't be sleeping with, we should call them out. Recently, John Christ, this is an unfortunate story. The comedian John Christ, the Christian comedian, he's, he was up and comer. And uh, he had to cancel his tour. Why? Because he was um, fooling around with women and married women. Like, it's one thing for a single guy, he's fooling around with women, okay, he's probably, he needs to get married, but when you're fooling around with married women, that's a serious problem. And you know what I heard, read in the article, it said that there was many Christian leaders who knew it and said nothing. What the heck? Like, that's, that, that right there should infuriate the church and say, we got to clean our house. We got to take care of our business. Who cares if unbelievers act like unbelievers? They're supposed to. My goodness. But see, it's so much easier, isn't it? It's so much easier to just look at unbelievers and say, see, I'm not as bad as them. That's called moralism. That's called moralism. That's what I just told you to avoid in your church. So, so, so you've got to realize something. Unbelievers, when they act like unbelievers, well, they're just ignorant, and that's okay. They're, they, the, the point is God opens eyes, and, and that's why we preach Christ. Notice that Paul, Peter, as hard as he was for what they did, he gives them grace here. He's like, you didn't know what you were doing. Doesn't Jesus say this from the cross? Father, forgive them. For what? They don't know what they're doing. Unbelievers are un- un- uh, unaware of what they're doing. Ephesians 4.17 talks about this. Paul says, I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is due them due to their hardness of heart. So, um, <clears throat> Peter says, you did this in ignorance, uh, but there's a way back. Now, there's this beautiful Old Testament um, uh, statute that applies to this text in a really cool way. 
And this is why I say we preach Christ and him crucified because Christ, as he says this, by the way, look at this on the screen. Would you look at this on the screen real quick? Because look what he says. He thus fulfilled. He thus fulfilled the prophets. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Never forget that. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Okay? Now I'm going to show you in a cool way. You acted in ignorance. You put Jesus to death in ignorance. You didn't do it maliciously. You didn't do it consciously. You weren't aware of what you were doing when you did it. Okay, why is that important? In the Old Testament, there is this law, this little statute. It's a crazy statute. Actually, there's a bunch of chapters devoted to this. It's called Cities of Refuge. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in the Old Testament, for the land, when Israel went into the land, they were supposed to set aside certain cities. They were called Cities of Refuge. And these were for people, anyone who unintentionally or unknowingly killed someone, uh, rather than putting that person to death, eye for an eye, uh, that person could flee to the city of refuge. Now, this happens. This is talked about in Numbers 35, in uh, Deuteronomy 19, and Joshua 21. Three chapters of the Old Testament are devoted to this weird statute, right? This weird statute of cities of refuge. What does this have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with anything about the gospel? It has everything to do with things about the gospel. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing about cities of refuge. Okay, um, first, this is where America's judicial system gets its manslaughter rule, by the way, from the Old Testament. So there's murder, and then there's manslaughter, which means you accidentally killed someone. You're texting and driving, and you accidentally, that's called manslaughter, okay? This comes from the Old Testament. But there's a more beautiful re reality for what these cities of refuge represent. The rule was, according to Numbers 35, 28, he must remain in the city of refuge until the day of the until the death of the high priest. And after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession, but he might he might get killed by the avenging family. We don't know. He's up for grabs, right? So he stays in the city of refuge, safe in the city of refuge for unknowingly or unwittingly killing someone. When the high priest dies, he has to go back home. No more safety. Well, guess what this is pointing to? It's pointing to the reality of what our high priest is all about. See, we have a high priest. His name is Jesus, and he never dies. And we sin in ignorance all the time. And our ignorance cost him his life. He is not just the one that is put to death for us unwittingly. He is also the high priest who lives forever and covers us and keeps us safe in the city of refuge. Isn't that cool? I just love that. I love the Bible. It all comes together, friends, but it has to come together around Jesus not morality. Okay, verse 19, repent, therefore, and turn back. Two terms there. Repent means change your mind. Change your mind about what? About Jesus. Turn back to God that your sins may be blotted out. By the way, that word blotted out means that someone literally takes, in the, old, in the, um, in the ancient world, uh, ink didn't have any acid in it, so it, it would just lay on the paper. It wouldn't embed into the fabrics or the fibers of the paper. So what you could do in the ancient world with papyrus is you could take a wet sponge and you could literally just wipe away all the text. It would look like a brand new piece of paper. You can't do that with paper and pen now, right? Because there's acid in the ink. But in the Old Testament, or in the ancient times, that's what you did. So literally, here's what happens when you repent and you turn to Jesus. All your sins are washed away, wiped out, brand new piece of paper. I, I emphasize that because there are so many Christians that say this to themselves on a daily basis. You say this to yourself all the time. I know you do. Here's what you say. I know that deep down, someday, I'm going to have to pay for my sins. Okay, that is anathema to the gospel. That is anathema to the scriptures. That is anathema to the truth of what Jesus has done for you. Uh, God will not make you pay for sins that Christ already paid for. That's, that's not, um, even in our legal judicial system, you can't pay twice for the same sin. Okay, you can't pay twice for the same crime. So, so stop telling yourself these things. You are free from your sins. Secondly, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I love that term because times of refreshing, the word could mean rest. It could mean um, Sabbath, actually. It's like the cooling breeze. Uh, this is pointing back to the Garden of Eden. Because if you remember, the Bible says that the Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day. The cooling breeze came with the Lord in the presence. What were they living in in the Garden of Eden? In the cooling presence of God. He brought them refreshment every single day. That's what repentance does. It brings a refreshment to your soul. It brings the Sabbath rest of God to your soul. And then third, that he may send Christ, verse 20, appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the prophet's, uh, mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then he says, Moses, the Lord God <coughs> said, 
I'm sorry, Moses said, verse 22, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So here he's, he's interpreting the Old Testament through Jesus. Jesus is this prophet that Moses talked about. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Notice what the unforgivable sin is. The unforgivable sin is not listening to the prophet that Moses talked about. Who's the prophet? Jesus. So we don't go to hell because we're bad Christians. We go to hell because we reject Jesus. Make sure you're clear about that, because some of you live as anxious little Christians out there. Did I really? Did I commit a sin that He won't forgive me? Did I commit? You know, no, no, no. Did you re- did you reject Jesus? Because that's if you reject listening to His voice, yes, you're lost. But if you receive Jesus, if you turn to Him for forgiveness, if you walk, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Right? You're in the faith. He is the ultimate. He is the last prophet uh, that Moses talked about. And it shall be that everyone. Uh, verse twenty-three. Verse twenty-four. Now. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. In other words, what Peter's clearly saying here is the whole Old Testament is all talking about Jesus. Uh, Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets. In other words, back to you again, you guys should know this. You guys should know this because you have the scriptures. You're sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, God having raised up his servant Jesus Uh, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 here, the promise to Abraham, where God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, go to the land that I will show you, and I will make a great nation of you, and I'll bless you and make your name great so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And all in you, God says to Abraham, all the families or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, not just the Jewish nation, all the, the Gentiles, right? They're in Solomon's portico. They're the gateway. They're the, they're the bridge from the presence of, God, presence of God to the nations. How? Through the name of Jesus. That's the role of the church. That's what it's always been about. That's why we have to talk about the resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, here's the effect. Verse 1 of chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Verse 2, greatly annoyed. Okay, so the preaching of Jesus is always going to upset somebody. It's always going to make someone mad. So they're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're mad about that statement. They're mad about the event that they're talking about. How dare you talk about this guy we killed? How dare you say he's alive again? Okay, so this is the reality that a lot of preachers have to live with. Okay, this is why a lot of preachers today do not want to challenge people with God's word, do not want to put people on their heels, do not want to people make, make people feel guilt because they're afraid of this kind of thing. Well, what if people say that I upset them? Well, did you tell them the truth? Because if they were told the truth, it shouldn't matter if you upset them. Now, you can say the truth in love. Don't say it in hate. But listen, sometimes you say the truth and it upsets people. I have this happen on a regular basis at our church. I will say the same thing to two different people. They're sitting right next to each other in the same row. One person receives it. One person walks away offended. That's how it works. Some people don't receive, okay? But look what it says in verse 2. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the, um, verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Do you realize that the number of men came to 5,000? Do you know what that means? That means about 20,000 people came to Christ on that moment. I mean, a lame man gets healed, that's a big deal. Like, I think that's got an effect, right? So 20,000 people get saved. And this is the beautiful thing about the church. This is the result. When you preach Christ, people's hearts are changed. This is why Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, not the moral, not the moral uh, legislation of the scriptures, not, not the law, not, not, the, um, not, the, not the Sermon on the Mount. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, a.k.a. what he just said here, and also to the Gentile. We have to preach Christ because if we don't preach Christ, hearts don't get changed. We can't legislate people to do what they should do according to God's word without their hearts being changed. Jesus said you can't get good fruit from a bad tree. You have to first make the tree good and then the fruit will be good. But you and I can't make any trees good. God does that. That's a supernatural act of God to take a bad tree and make it good so it produces good fruit. Okay, preaching Christ is important what? Uh, big, big three takeaways from this talk. 
Number one, the message of Christianity is Christ crucified and raised to life. That's the message, guys. I don't know if you went to a church and you thought the message was, um, you know, don't don't uh, listen to rock and roll and don't party and don't drink and don't, you know, do all these things and then maybe you'll go to heaven. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is Christ crucified and raised to life. Number two, Christianity isn't something that you do. It's something that happens to you. Like, that's, that's the most important thing, probably, that you should take away from this talk. Christianity is not something that you aspire to get to. Um, every once in a while, I'll meet a Christian, and I'll say, or I'll meet somebody, and I'll say, are you a Christian? Because I don't know. And they'll say, well, I'm trying. Okay, if you say I'm trying, you're not. <laughs> or you are, and you just don't realize what it really is about. You don't try to be a Christian. You either are a Christian, or you are not a Christian. Are there bad Christians? Yes. Every single one of them is bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the sad reality of the church. It's filled with bad people, okay? Um, but it's something that happens to you, and it changes you from the inside out. Uh, that's the reality of, the, of preaching Christ. And then number three, some will scoff, but many will be changed. And so we have to preach Christ. We have to preach Christ because we never know who's going to receive it, who's going to reject it. That's not our business. Our business is not to worry about that. Our business is to preach Christ and see God add to his church daily. So that's what this talk was about. I hope it helps. I hope you understand that when you read the book of Acts, it's not all about the wow of the miracles, the wow of the supernatural. It's also mostly about the power of the gospel. Preach Christ. People get changed. And when people get changed, neighborhoods get changed, and communities get changed, and states get changed and nations get changed, and then worlds get changed. Amen. Hey, connect with us, youtube.com slash thedeependtv. That's the only one I really want you to pay attention to. Pay attention to that one, okay? YouTube. So if you're watching us on any other YouTube, scratch it. Get to youtube.com slash thedeependtv. Subscribe. Hit the notification bell. You will get bugged every time we go live, but not bugged, blessed. Okay? I will see you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.